This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. In retail, though, uh, the big news today that Sears Canada is uh, wanting now to obtain court approval to start liquidating all of their stores. Remember the story we carried last week that said they were going to add another 10 or 12 or something like that stores to the ones that they had already closed down? Well, they're all getting tossed onto the fire now, and uh, that's obviously causing a great deal of angst in the business community, and certainly for a number of Sears employees who thought that maybe there was a chance that uh, that Sears could rise from the ashes like a phoenix. It's not going to happen. It doesn't seem that way anyway. So what are the implications? Let's uh, bring Ian Lee into the conversation from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University up in Ottawa. Ian, good morning. How are you today? I'm doing just fine. Thanks, Bill. Let me ask you maybe, I, I, the obvious headline here is Sears is closing all its stores, but is, is the headline that we're missing here is that we're witnessing the death of bricks-and-mortar retail in this country? No. Um, I think we're seeing the fundamental restructuring of retailing, and that's I'm not playing with words. Uh, bricks-and-mortar is going through fundamental transformation, but it is not, I argue very strongly, it is not going to vanish or disappear. What we're seeing is the restructuring and the rebalancing is going to be uh, more uh, purchases by you and I and millions of other Canadians and Americans in the States are going to be buying more stuff online. But that does not mean that all sales are going to migrate online. There's, uh, that's what I mean by the rebalancing. Mm-hmm. And so stuff that lends itself to buying online, and I mean by that stuff you can readily compare um, a computer, you know, a Lenovo or an HP or whatever or a Dell, a certain size of screen, a certain power of processor. It's readily comparable across many, many retailers with the flick of a mouse, uh, cameras, uh, electronic goods generally speaking. Uh, that sort of thing is going to uh, has been migrating steadily and will continue to migrate uh, online. Uh, but I uh, I strongly disagree with those who say you know it's going to all all retail is going to migrate. The biggest example there's two very big examples where they're going to they are resisting the trend and will continue. One is groceries. And uh, and I'm a huge retail uh, buying online. I buy cameras online. I buy you know uh, laptops online, electronics online. But I insist on going to the grocery store because first off, I go you know every second day sort of thing. And secondly, I want to see what's on the shelf. Mm-hmm. To use that great line, I want to I want to squeeze the oranges. You know, I want to touch the. You know, you're not supposed to, but we all do. And and so there's that immediate gratification with grocery retailing. Some will go online. For people that are shut-ins, people that are disabled, people that are uber, uber busy. But the vast majority of us, I believe, are going to continue to shop in grocery stores. And likewise, high-end clothing. I'm not talking, you know, four pair of socks for $4.99, uh, $4.99. That sort of thing, it's very commodity-like you'll buy online, probably. But buying a $500 suit, I just don't believe people are going to buy that online. I want to go into the store, try it on, look in the mirror, etc., have them, you know, uh, shape it on, on me, uh, and so forth. So there are some products that lend themselves and some sectors that will go to online, and that's the stuff that's very standardized with a standard model number, like an appliance, a washing machine, a dryer, electronic goods. But there's lots of other goods that won't go online because we want to touch it and feel it and squeeze it and so forth. And then the second point, very quickly, Bill, is this is why it's not the death of retailing. Retailing uh, Retailers are going to have to uh, reinvent their business, and they're going to have to provide the one thing that online can't provide, and that's service. Uh, you know, for those who want just price, low price, low price, well, it's probably online is the way to go. But for those who want customer service, 
from somebody and they want a lot of feedback um, uh, you know, on what they should do or shouldn't do. Uh, and I'm thinking I'm doing a reno right now. And so I go to Home Depot and I go to Lowe's and, you know, and I, I value the places that can give me advice on which type of product I should be using. So although I could theoretically order that online, I don't. I go to the store because I want to talk to the people in the store who can give me advice on, on what to do. So some of our business is going to migrate. Some of these chains are going to disappear, yes. Sears was, you know, inevitable it was going to go. It was losing sales for literally over a decade. But it is, and there will be some shopping malls that are going to have to reinvent themselves and reconfigure, but it is not the death of retailing writ large. See, I'm that guy, too. I, I want customer service. I want somebody who's going to say, I'll tell you why you should buy this TV over that one. And I get yeah. sometimes they want to up somebody, but I don't know yeah. that much about the product, and I know that, yeah. that for the most part they do. Yeah. But to that point, though, Ian, most of the retail outlets right now that are still in business are actually going in the opposite direction and cutting back on staff because of, uh, well, we can't afford to do this anymore. So are they, are they, are they really just you know cutting their own throats by doing that? I, I think they are uh, because, because, Anyone who thinks, any retailer out there listening to your program right now who thinks that they can compete on price with the two most gigantic retailers in the world, and of course I'm talking Amazon, and of course I'm talking Walmart. If you're a small, mid-sized retailer out there and you think you can compete with them on price, you're dreaming. You cannot. Uh, That doesn't mean you're doomed. It doesn't mean you're finished. It doesn't mean you don't have a competitive advantage. Competitive advantage is not just price. Price is an important part of competitive advantage. This is the stuff I teach, as you can tell, and I talk about this all the time every week in my classes. Mm-hmm. But there's, it's, not just, it's not just price. Competitive advantage can be location. You're in a really good location. Uh, think of the way Tim Hortons or McDonald's have very strategically located their, pro- their, their stores, okay, their services. But it applies just as much to a Home Depot or to a department store, you know. You want to locate where the demographics are good, where there's lots of traffic flow, where there's lots of people, where the unemployment's uh, low, that kind of thing. Canadian Tire has been famous, famous for being geniuses at the location of their stores as a source of competitive advantage. And they're beating the clock out of everybody. Uh, including online. So the idea that if you're physical bricks and mortar, you're doomed is not true. There are bricks and mortars chains, more still to go, that will fail. No question about it. But the idea that we're going to go from zero to 100% online, I just think is a grotesque exaggeration. It's going to cause a, a transformation of retailing, and the remaining retailers are going to have to be much more nimble and are going to have to give you and me a reason to want to go to the store to buy the product instead of going online. And that'll be customer service is part of that equation. Part of it is location. Uh, part of it is uh, the stuff they're offering and, 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 and what they're doing in the store to entice me to come into the store in terms of, you know, seminars or something, you know, on how to use the TV or how to use uh, the, the differences of, of, you know, different one TV versus another, curved screens versus straight screens and, uh, you know, 72-inch versus 80-inch and so forth. So there is a market for physical, but I, where it's a commodity-type product, you know, four pair of socks for $4.99, that's going to migrate, I think, online and, the, you know, the standardized, you know, cameras and laptops and that kind of thing, standardized stuff where there's a standardized skew or model number or product number is going to migrate online. Think of airline tickets. There's no more. It's too easy to shop online as opposed to going to a travel agent. So there will be travel agents, but they're very niche, providing a very niche service and not to the mass market. 
Let's talk about that transition. I, I don't know if there's too many people listening to our, our discussion right now that remember the the birth of the department store. I mean, yeah. it happened many, many years ago, but, you know, with Macy's and Gimbel's and everything down in New York. And, yep. and here in Canada, we had Eaton's and Sears. Uh, but uh, as you say, Ian, this didn't just happen overnight. This has been going on for quite a long time. Why can't these people read the tea leaves? And, and, and you know, Eaton's, of course, I just mentioned a few minutes ago, was a victim some years yeah. ago. Now yeah. it's Sears. Uh, yeah. I, we hear about, well, Best Buy and a number of other stores that seem to be in peril right now. Yeah. Clearly, if you can see this, they can see this. But uh, do they not have the ability to transition? Um, I, I know it's uh, almost a cliche, but I do believe it is leadership. I don't blame the workers. Um, you know, when you look at Sears and Eaton's, and I'm glad you brought the two of them up, you know, in a sense, if we think about it more conceptually, they invented online 70 years ago. It was called the catalog. Okay, the computer didn't exist. Online didn't exist. But you went into a store, and you looked at this screen. They called them printed catalogs in those days. They didn't call them TV screens. And you flipped the pages and saw huge numbers of, of products, a huge num- selection of inventory. You made your selection, and you ordered it, and it was shipped to you, the customer, or to the Sears catalog store, and you picked it up a week later. Well, that, conceptually, is the Amazon model. All they did was what Sears should have done in 1995, and so should have Eaton's. They simply took the catalog and put it online. So now people didn't have to go into the Sears store anymore, the catalog store. They could go online with their computer and look at the catalog online. Now, they didn't call it a catalog, but you see what I'm saying. It's Mm -hmm. the same idea, and it was the failure of the leadership of Sears in those subsequent years with the emergence of online, uh, the failure of Eaton's and those stores to recognize how they already had expertise in selling to customers online using inventories in the back office. Whereas Jeff Bezos came along and he understood how he could reinvent retailing, not all retailing, but a significant chunk of retailing. And so that's leadership. So they had great leadership and still do at, 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 at Walmart and at uh, uh, Amazon. And these old line retailers, Sears and, and, uh, and uh, Eaton's and so forth, they failed to see the opportunities under their noses, under their noses, on their face. There's a TV commercial on right now that just peeked into my imagination as you were talking about this. It's, it's these people in 70s garb, and it's obviously a business meeting about how we're going to sell more CDs. And, and the yeah. one lady, I think, I'm sure you've seen it, she's saying, well, if you talked about price point and maybe you're moving online, and the guy says, well, how's that going to make us sell? And the, the question is, is are you on the leading edge of, of innovation or not? And it yeah. sounds like these guys were, I, I don't know why they weren't paying attention. Everyone else in the world seemed yeah. to be gravitating to online, yet these guys yeah. seemed like dinosaurs that just didn't think that, that this was going to happen, that this was a passing fad. You're, you're, I think the, the correct word is dinosaurs. They were stuck in their old paradigm and their old sales model which was that you go into a physical store and you buy your stuff. And, 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 and we don't even have to use Jeff Bezos. There was indicators or clues. I mean, the catalog sales itself was a clue. Another was the, the selling of appliances increasingly became uh, more um, um, commodity-like. And, and Sears understood this. You know, they even set up separate appliance centers. And, and, and so where they gave, you know, lower price, lots of volume, and, uh, and they could move the product out very quickly to you. So there were signs that retailing was changing, and that when they say retailing is changing, that's just another way of saying you and me and all of us out there called the consumers were changing in terms of our wants 
and our expectations. And, and, and so retailing was not monolithic anymore. There were some things where we didn't need customer service. You know, I don't need customer service to buy four pair of socks or underwear for four dollars and ninety nine cents. You know, you just don't need there's you just don't need assistance. But then there's some other products in other markets where I do want a lot more hands on uh, advice and support. So uh, in one market, I might be very price sensitive, and me, the very same identical consumer in another market, is willing to pay a premium because I want lots of customer service. And and so Sears and Eaton's didn't understand that. They saw the entire retail market, whether it was socks and underwear or furniture or appliances, they saw one size fits all. Everybody has to go into the Sears store. And, and so they didn't respond. They didn't understand that the customers were changing. And, and, and you, they should have seen it. I mean, I noticed this uh, in the, in the my, 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 I mean, very full disclosure here. My mother dressed the four of us, the four uh, children she had in the 50s. We got dressed every year, spring and fall at Sears in Ottawa at Sears Carlingwood. I mean, I remember going there every spring and fall. My mother would take all four of us in tow and, and go and dress us and buy our shoes at Sears and buy our shorts and our jeans and our pants and our T-shirts and everything. Like it was one-stop shopping. She bought everything at Sears. But then you went back 25 years later in the 70s or 80s, and you didn't see young people. You saw an awful lot of older people. And you could see that they weren't keeping up with the times. They weren't renewing their customer base and getting young people in there. They were going off to completely different places. So the signs were there long, long before the the, the, the bankruptcy and the uh, and the demise in this last week. Got a minute or two left. I got to ask you about one other offshoot of this, and I think it's probably a a corollary of this, but an important one nonetheless. Every shopping mall that was built in this country and in the 60s and 70s and probably even into the 80s had what they call an anchor store, two yeah. large stores at either end. And it was basically to say, okay, that's what's going to bring people to the mall. And then the you know they'll go shop with all the little stores in between. Eaton's and Sears were always the two anchor stores at one end of the mall or the other. You're right. Uh, it was like that at Limeridge Mall here in Hamilton, the Burlington Mall, Mapleview, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They're gone now. What's going to happen to those malls? I think you've asked the more <laughs> strategic question uh, because with retailing it's not that these retail sales are vanishing uh, people, some people say oh my goodness look at all those jobs well no they're just being displaced you know now the jobs are being at amazon and they're shipping them out through ups or fedex and so there's lots of people now working for fedex and amazon and instead of working at sears so it's just a it's a game of call it musical chairs in the labor market the much more interesting thing is well, how is this going to change the urban environment in big cities like Toronto, Hamilton, Ottawa, because these uh, these huge malls occupied huge amounts of space, and then they changed the way we lived. You know, we jump in the car, go out to get the free parking at the mall, and and if indeed a significant chunk, and I'm not predicting the percentage right now, it's up to about 15% of retail sales is online. That means that 85% is still physically in the bricks and mortar stores. I think there's a long way to go. What that ultimate number is, is it going to be 60-40, 60% uh, physical, 40% online? I don't know, but I think that we're going to see more. And that, it brings us straight to your question, what's going to happen to all these malls? Well, clearly, some of them are going to be knocked down. And I mean physically destroyed, knocked down. I was in upstate New York. It just happens to be an example I saw recently where an entire outdoor mall with a, uh, with a, you could see the old Sears store, the Kmart, they destroyed the mall. They literally took the, the wreckers in and they knocked it down because it was too expensive to maintain as empty stores. 
So that does not mean all the, you know, the prime stores in downtown Toronto and, you know, the prestige areas, downtown Hamilton and Ottawa, they're going to remain. I think out in the suburbs, we're going to see more of a differentiation. Some of those malls will survive. Some will get restructured into smaller stores. And some malls will eventually be knocked down because there isn't a market for them. Well, time to channel Bob Dylan. The times they are changing. Yes. Ian, thanks as always. Great talking with you again. My pleasure. Thanks Ian Lee, much. of course, from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Back after the break, the Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Here's a good news story. Uh, employment ha- in this uh, city, in the Hamilton area, grew the second largest amount in the country in the third quarter of this year, according to a survey that was done by BMO Economic Analysis. Uh, that's great news. Now, we're going to get some analysis on this and find out exactly what is going on. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Glenn Norton, who's the Director of Economic Development for the City of Hamilton. Glenn, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us here. Well, thanks, Bill. Pleasure to be on the show. Well, last week when you were on, you were talking about setting a record for building permits for the city, and now you've got this stuff. You must feel like a baseball player that's hitting 400 right now. Well, there's no doubt about it. The city is certainly doing well. No doubt about it. Now, well, let's let's talk a little bit about the numbers and, and the story. What, what do you see from from what you saw today in these numbers, Glenn? Well, uh, one thing that I want to sort of make sure your listeners are aware of is when they look at these stats, these are the CMA stats. So Hamilton CMA does include Grimsby and Burlington. So in fairness, those communities are also doing very well in terms of the growth of jobs. They also went on in the report to explain that it inc- it's based on place of residence. So it is picking up the fact that there are some people commuting in from Hamilton, Burlington, and uh, Grimsby into Toronto. But that number is relatively small. I don't want to take away from the overall um, good news of the story, which basically is that there are um, uh, has been a significant growth in jobs, which is good for job seekers, right? I mean, that's what we want for our citizens. Exactly. We want there to be a job for everyone that wants to work. We, and can work, we want there to be a job for them. So that's pretty good news that we're, we're moving in that direction uh, quite substantially. Can I address that for a second, the, the, that first point you mentioned, Glenn, because I think it, it, it probably needs some clarification. Uh, there will be a stat, and I know there's another release coming out later on, probably next week now, uh, that's going to talk about the number of people that are going intercity from one city to another. In other words, they live here, but they have a job in Toronto. Uh, two things about that. First of all, those people chose to live in Hamilton for whatever reason. So they get their take-home pay and they buy their groceries here, et cetera. So, I mean, that, that's still good for the local economy. But there's an Absolutely. Ins- but there's yeah. an insinuation also that those poor people, they can't find jobs in Hamilton. I know a lot of people that do that commute, and it's because they love living here, but they love the job in Toronto. I mean, th- th- that's not necessarily a negative connotation or a negative, com- or a negative statistic. No, no, it's not. And I, I just want to... Um, mention one thing about that, Bill, is when we say they're out commuting, the the 30% of the population of of Hamilton that commutes, 30% of those out commute, but only half of them are actually going to Toronto. So, I mean, there are good jobs and people leaving Hamilton to go to Burlington. That counts as commuting. Going to Oakville, going to Mississauga, going to Guelph, right? Some of them are going the other direction, to St. Catharines. So, we don't always need to lump it in and automatically assume commuting equals Toronto destination. 
that's really only about 15% of the commuting population is actually going to Toronto. Well, exactly. We've had those discussions with Mayor Goldwing of Burlington as well. I know you're certainly familiar with those numbers, Glenn, about the number of people that go back and forth between Burlington that uh, that may live yeah. there and work here or vice versa. So yeah, it's, it's a statistic that some people can point to and say, well, we're not doing as well as we should have. But on the other hand, sometimes those are choices. I mean, there are some jobs in Toronto that just aren't available here in Hamilton that people like, but they'd rather live here and raise their family here. That's that's a good news aspect of the story as far as I'm concerned. No, I, I agree with you, Bill. I, I agree. And those people who are living here, they're not just buying groceries and stuff. They're actually a, a part of the fabric. I mean, their kids are probably in, in school here. They're in the sports here. Those people probably go out in the evenings to see the local theater, music, uh, you know, the venues that are here. You're not driving back into Toronto or another city for your discretionary spend. You're spending it, your time and your money, here where your home is. There's a, another element to this that I want to talk about, and that's uh, the the residual effect of a survey that comes out like this. This was BMO, of course, that uh, did this, Banque Montreal, uh, that did the analysis on this, and it was done on a national level. And it's published on a national level. And, and the headline here seems to be, Kelowna, B.C., by the way, was number one. Hamilton right. was number two. Uh, and that's that's something that will resonate in other communities. And, and from your standpoint uh, in economic development, and, and part of the mantra, of course, Glenn, is to not just uh, to, to attract new business, but to retain businesses. This this is the sort of thing that you can underscore and say, see, this is a great place to have your business. This is a great place to expand your business. No, absolutely. What it also does for us in ECDEV is make sure that we keep working hard to um, attract people to, to man those jobs, to actually be in those jobs, right? Because it makes it a bit of a challenge if your unemployment rate gets too low for those looking to hire. So we will definitely be spending some time as part of our strategy in making sure that the workforce knows what a great place to live, work, and play Hamilton is. Besides employers, employees we need to spend some time attracting as well. So what do you do with numbers like this? I mean, in your overall scheme of things, uh, you know, you've got a, a master plan in ECDEV, Glenn, and, and clearly the indicators seem to be that things are going pretty well right now. But you, you don't have control over these surveys that are being done uh, by The Economist and by other trade magazines and now by BMO, et cetera, like this. Uh, and, and to your credit, uh, there's an awful lot of good news that comes out as a result of these reports right now, too. But it's, it's got to put a little wind beneath the wings of the active department. Yo, absolutely. That and some of the awards that we've won over the last uh, few weeks. Um, I think you saw some of the coverage on it. Um, uh, FDI magazine, which is um, a subsidiary of the Financial Times out of London, said that Hamilton has the best foreign direct investment strategy of any mid-sized city in North America. That was pretty nice to hear, right? I mean, we, we spent a lot of time at looking for, at foreign direct investment, developing a new strategy. We launched it last year, and to be sort of judged as having the best strategy um, amongst all your peers for mid-sized cities was, was pretty good. So we, we do feel like we've got the, to use your phrase, the wind beneath our wings, and uh, we just need to keep the momentum going and need to stay sharp to the needs of our existing companies, and, you know, and listening to what they're telling us and um, be aware of what those looking to move into the area um, are looking for and make sure that we address their needs. Over the years, uh, when we've talked about, with, well, your predecessor, Neil Everson, of course, uh, and, and now you, Glenn, in this position, 
when when the phone does ring and people are saying we're sort of interested in Hamilton, what, what sort of questions are they asking? I mean, I guess this this is a this is a very competitive environment right now. Uh, our competition is not just Burlington or Kitchener Waterloo anymore. It's 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 you know Frankfurt, Germany. It's a number. I mean, any, these places could locate anywhere, and and it seems as if a lot of them are starting to choose Hamilton now. Yeah. So so you're asking what are the questions they yeah. ask, and I'd say one of the very first ones is. Tell me about the workforce there. I am in X industry. Do you have many people employed in X industry there? Okay, and then we would talk about the catchment area. We have those stats, and we'd say, and within a 45-minute commute, that number is actually three times or you know, some much larger factor that you can draw upon. So once they're satisfied that the talent is here, they do get to things like, oh, so tell me about land price. Tell me about development charges. Tell me about your transportation infrastructure. Again, some of them being more dependent on that than others, depending on what their uh, product is, whether they're manufacturing or service industry. But we have a great answer when we say this city has the best sort of trimodal transportation logistics of, of any city. We've got a port, the busiest port on the Canadian side of the Great Lakes. We have access uh, via highway directly to the United States within 45 minutes, also into Toronto and also elsewhere. And we have this airport. That, that we own, by the way, and it's great for cargo, and it operates 24 hours a day, seven days a week, unlike uh, some other airports in the area that have curfews at certain times. So we've got a great story to tell them when it comes to the logistics side. We have a great story to tell when we come to quality of life in terms of we have a harbor, we have the escarpment, we have the trails, RBG, we have culture, music. Um, we've got a pre- pretty compelling story, uh, in, you know, in my view, and, and obviously in the view of... Um, some companies looking. But what what sort of jobs? Because I know invariably people are going to start asking questions. Well, are these full-time, part-time? Are they sustainable jobs? Uh, and, and those are valid questions. I understand that. But at the same time, there's a phenomenon going on in the workforce right across North America right now that seems to go for contract situations as opposed to, okay, Glenn, you're hired and, and you're going to be with us and here are your full benefits, etc. Uh, and, and we're certainly getting swept up in that like many other places. But, but do you track exactly what kind of employment is actually resulting from some of the in- initiatives that you're trying to move forward here? Yeah, we work uh, very closely with Workforce Planning Hamilton. I think you're probably aware of uh, Judy Travis and her team, and that's what they spend all their time on is, is tracking the jobs. What are Who's advertising? What are the jobs? Full-time, part-time. So you're right. There is, um, you know, worldwide a trend to more contract work and more part-time. Uh, right now we're, we're following the trend. However, that doesn't mean there aren't good full-time jobs being created. Um, you know, for instance, the... The area that has had phenomenal growth, and they're almost all full-time, is in the technical uh, occupations in health and the support industries in health. Those are two really big uh, growth areas for up. Those are up 11,000 jobs in the Hamilton CMA just in a year-over-year. That's... That's pretty good, and those are pretty good-paying jobs. Yeah, and you know, that's an interesting stat, and I'm glad you brought that up, because there will be those who will simply look at these numbers and say, yeah, well, those are a lot of people that are just working in Toronto and living here, and we've already gone over that. But when you look at where the growth is, those are essentially Hamilton-area jobs. I mean, that's that's the growth. I mean, that's one of the areas that you targeted, of course, was healthcare and health research and innovation. Uh, and to see that growth there indicates that those are those are locally grown jobs that are starting to materialize now. Absolutely, absolutely. The two industries that are, um, you know, looking to hire that right now have the most opportunities available, if, if people are interested, would be manufacturing and construction. 
we have the our manufacturers have done such a good job at, at attracting new product lines and so on from their parents that they are actually finding there's a bit of a shortage of jobs for people at the entry level. So if there's somebody looking for uh, a job right now, I would strongly encourage them to to look at our manufacturing or our construction sector. Those are pretty good paying jobs. They come with benefits and. Uh, I think they should be looking uh, there. Well, I was just at Mohawk uh, College yesterday, Glenn, actually at the McMaster campus, the healthcare campus there, and the innovation and the uh, simulation center they've got. And I know you're, you've seen the, the facility that they've got there, and it's, it's world class. And interestingly enough, uh, during the course of the program, I talked with a number of people involved in the program, some teaching it, others who are there as students, and they're from all over the world. One fellow from Australia, somebody from Montreal, another fellow from the Far East. Uh, and, and they heard about what was going on here in Hamilton, and I said, well, why did you choose this course? Because, I mean, there are similar courses in other parts of the world. And they said, because we were told that this is the best opportunity to get employment immediately, right after the course. So there's a reputation that Hamilton yeah. is developing now. I, I love that. And then I always say to our partners at McMaster and Mohawk that you guys are incredible. You're a great asset to the city, and we need to continue to work closely with you because... You are turning out some phenomenal graduates, and we would like to retain them here. We're, we're, we don't want to train a graduate for another country or competitor. Let's see what we can do to retain them here in Hamilton. There's another element to this, and I'm just looking out the back window of the radio station as you and I are talking, Glenn, and I'm looking at the McMaster Innovation Park and, and of course, the Innovation Factory that's, uh, that's located within the park here on Longwood Road. And uh, I remember the discussion that, uh, that the city had at the time with McMaster University with the late Peter George and and the city leaders at that time about this being uh, a, a, an incubator for growth and for innovation. And it certainly has been that with the number of startups that have gone through there. Uh, and I'm amazed at the number of jobs that have been created. Now, as you've talked about, uh, the days of, of a factory coming here and offering 5,000 jobs are few and far between right now. But when you look at the startups that have come here, and they might only start off with four or five or 10 or 15 employees at a time, but, but mm-hmm. those are, those are good-paying jobs and steady jobs and jobs in growth industries. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, Bill. We are uh, very much becoming a city of innovation. We are, we are known for being sort of resilient and, and a bit gutsy and also uh, pretty smart. So there's a lot of startups out there, and even one- and two-person firms, um, you know, plant the seed that uh, can grow later. So we shouldn't forget that. We, we do have some great large employers, if you think about... Uh, uh, Hamilton Health Sciences Center is the single largest employer in the city, ArcelorMittal DeFasco being number two. Great companies at the high end. We also have some incredible companies that are one and two persons that uh, just watch them grow. You know, there's uh, good things to come. Well, you mentioned manufacturing, and we, we would be remiss when we look at these numbers if we didn't mention the fact that, yes, it's transitioning, it's changing. Manufacturing in, in this area, manufacturing, I guess, in, in the world, Glenn, is not the way it was 25 years ago. But there is still a huge manufacturing sector here in this city. And, and to your point about what's going on vis-a-vis innovation, uh, a lot of the advanced manufacturing techniques that are being used here in, in, in these same plants are being developed right here in Hamilton by some of these innovators that we were just referring to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the work that uh, ArcelorMittal DeFasco is doing, they recognize as a leading edge for their system, and they are a worldwide uh, global company, as you're aware. So, you know, that type of um, uh, fertilization and incubation of great ideas is something that we, we can only hope continues to grow, and we as a, as a department, as a city, need to continue to support them in that because very good things will come of that. And, we, 
you know, this whole business about the manufacturing supercluster, you've seen in the paper, in fact, I think um, uh, the Spectator covered it today, about uh, Minister uh, Baines is announcing the supercluster bids that are going to advance to the next stage, and the one that we're in, which was an advanced manufacturing supercluster with Toronto and Waterloo, uh, will be advancing to the next stage, one of nine across the country. That's a pretty good acknowledgement uh, of what we have here and sort of the infrastructure and the base of companies and educational institutions to support that when we're one of nine that's in line for, you know, the potentially billions of dollars that's available. But that's that's an interesting point, given the fact that some people are still concerned about, about you know, out-of-town commutes uh, for people that are working. But with partnerships that are being developed right now, uh, between, as you mentioned, the, this cluster between Toronto and KW and Hamilton, uh, that, that kind of commuting is, is probably inevitable anyway. We don't work in silos anymore. It's just, uh, it's not, hey, here are the Hamilton city limits, here are the Burlington city limits, here, you know, here's KW, etc. Uh, those lines are becoming more blurred as, as a lot of businesses are integrating with each other and communities are integrating. Absolutely. And it's not just happening here. As you've said, this is a worldwide phenomenon where you have sort of regional superclusters. Um, in Germany, you know, we saw it in Leipzig. We, we see it in Berlin. You're seeing it in California. Think of Silicon Valley. That's kind of the best example of a supercluster that everyone knows about. I don't know if too many people could name the cities in the Silicon Valley, but, boy, they sure heard of it, and they know that it is the world's leading um, area for advanced uh, technology and computing sciences. Okay, why can't we do the same thing here in Canada? I think we easily could, that this triangle that we're talking about um, could very well be recognized as uh, the North American or, or worldwide center for advanced manufacturing advancement. Well, it sounds like you're going to have to revise some of the economic development material right now because you've got another uh, feather, I guess, to put in your cap here, and that's always a good news story. Yeah, I might have to stretch my stretch targets, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn, congratulations to you and the staff. I know you guys do great work on this, and, and, and I know it's not all by yourself. As you mentioned, some of the great partners here with McMaster and Mohawk and Redeemer and, and those facilities, and, and, of course, the the private sector themselves who are working with economic development around to make an awful Absolutely. lot of this stuff happen. But this is, a, I guess, a, another benchmark along the way that says that uh, we're making some progress on this. Thanks a lot for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Glenn Norton, who, of course, is the uh, Director of Economic Development for the City of Hamilton. As I say, there will be a companion piece that comes up that talks about people commuting, but you got to take that with a grain of salt, too. It's easy to just look at numbers and interpret them as you wish. But uh, for I, I know one guy I can think of right now. He's a neighbor of mine, and he, he lives in Ancaster. Uh, and technically, he's employed here because there's a, a Hamilton office with where he works. But he also spends one day in Toronto. He spends one day up in KW. So I guess technically he's a commuter, but not really. So even those statistics can be interpreted in different ways. But anyway, Hamilton's looking good. And uh, when we come out number two in the whole country right now, that's a story that starts to spread and resonate uh, in the business community. And that can only be good news. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's about time to start talking about the uh, big race that comes up here. I know we have two monstrous races here in Hamilton every year. One is the Around the Bay race, of course, and that's already happened. That's in the spring every year. The second is the Marathon Road to Hope, which is coming up in just a, well, 23 days. And Esther Paul is the owner of the Runner's Den, of course, and founder of uh, the Road to Hope is going to join us uh, just after 1130 this morning to uh, talk about that. Right now, though, what everyone is talking about these days are the allegations of sexual harassment and rape piling up against movie mogul Harvey Weinstein, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow, Angelina Jolie, and so many others 
have come forward now, and the stories are quite frankly disturbing. Uh, as they have recounted what has gone on and as what many people suggested has gone on for many, many years. Others have come forward about this casting coach culture in Hollywood right now. Uh, the story is exploding right now. How deep does it go and what are the implications? Well, to answer some of those questions, uh, we're so pleased to welcome our next guest. Howard Levitt is Canada's leading employment lawyer, and he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Howard. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Bill? Good. Listen, we've heard these rumors about the casting coach. It's almost become a cliché. Uh, and, and I suppose there was some truth to all of these things, as there are with most rumors, but did we ever in our wildest imagination think that it would be this rampant? Well, no, nor did we about Gian Gomeshi when that first materialized. Um, and cultures change because incidents like this happen, and all of a sudden no one is sacrosanct, and no one is going to be able to get away with it because after this comes out, there's not going to be any domain left where anybody can prey on women in the workplace. Because women are quick to come forward now in a way they weren't before. Why now? Because, you know, the question, I'm sure you've heard it as well, Howard, over the last number of days is, why was this allowed to go on as long as it did? Who knows the answer to that? Maybe because he was successful in paying off the people who complained, and at some point the, the sheer magnitude of women coming forward were too great for him to be able to suppress the information. There were enough stories, like the Cosby, that began coming forward that, threats of libel stop working, and maybe he tried to get ahead of the story by essentially, well, I guess the New York Times uh, revealed the story. Maybe he just wasn't able to stop it anymore. You, it's, hard, it's hard to know what was going on behind the scenes, but he seemed to very quickly have PR agents in place, uh, legal team in place. As the story broke, they were already in place, so it appears that he was ready for this. You mentioned about uh, payoffs, and there there were, we do know, uh, some, I guess, out-of-court settlements uh, about some previous allegations and, and non-disclosure agreements, which uh, I suppose uh, he and his lawyers figured was was going to sew that up nicely. Well, he, he thought so, and we'll see what the agreements say. If the agreements say you have to pay back the money, that's one thing. If they simply have a non-disclosure agreement, then they have to sue for, he has to sue for damages. And at this point, one more allegation doesn't cause him any damages. The word's already out there, so they can pretty freely breach their confidentiality obligations if there's no specific penalty in them. A couple of different ways to look at this, but let me I, I talk about, uh, you talked about something a second ago. Let's let's get into that if we could, Howard, about culture uh, and attitude and societal attitudes about what has gone on. Uh, and, and in the time that Weinstein, of course, has been in this business, and, and, and this, is, this is an icon, just like the Cosby thing was, as you mentioned, and the Gomeshi thing. These are, are people that were revered, at least we thought they were within the industry right now, but there's a, a subculture and, I, I guess, a, a, a behind-closed-doors culture that many of us just do not know anything about. Well, that's true, and in many contexts that occurs, not just in the sexual harassment concept. Look at, um, look at sorry, the founder of Apple. His name just slipping my mind. You know what I'm talking about. He was supposed to be a tyrant towards well, Steve Jobs, yeah. Steve Jobs would have to cut the people would give a worse proposal to him first, knowing he'd always reject the first proposal before they give him the real proposal, just because he'd always beat them up on a first proposal every time. And he was nasty with his subordinates, but he's revered today. But there's always an, a seedy underside to, well, always, to some of these people that we just don't know about because it doesn't get out there. And unless they're prominent, no one cares very much. Well, we should make a distinction here, too, when we get into these discussions, and I know we certainly did when we talked about the Gomeshi case and, and Cosby and others. Uh, 
accusations and allegations about sexual harassment and and, and rape, and some of these are are allegations of rape as well. Uh, This is not a a sexual crime. This is a a crime of power, isn't it? Well, that's why sexual harassment, that's right, and that's why sexual harassment law in Canada is such that superior-subordinate relationships are almost inherently illegal. Certainly they are if the superior initiates the relationship. An overture by a superior subordinate in the workplace is sexual harassment at law. And people should understand that, and they don't to a large extent. How has the and law changed, Howard? Because how, of the power. How has the law addressed that over the last little while? Has, has it changed? Or have, there been, uh, have there been modifications to this and, and changes to this as a result of some of these allegations? The law itself evolves. The, the statute itself hasn't changed, but judges are people too. Human rights tribunal members are people too. And so they become more finely attuned to these issues in rendering their decisions. So the decisions themselves have higher damage awards, more likely have punitive damage awards, because when issues like this arise than they had once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was sexual, what we define today as sexual harassment all over workplaces in Canada. And then Anita, Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas happened in the United States, and that created a sea change in views and attitudes towards sexual harassment across perhaps the world, certainly Canada as well as the United States. And then Gomeshi had a significant impact on views toward, of tolerance towards sexual harassment in this country. And another sea change occurred. The broadcast industry perhaps is one of the last entertainment industries, perhaps one of the last bastions where the casting couch still exists. But there's, um, there, there's more societal awareness, which creates more judicial awareness, which creates more harsh sanctions. But there's a there's an attitudinal change. I mean, and, and I, we were talking about this the other day in, in the office here, uh, about like 20, 30, 40 years ago, for instance, somebody that was a drunk, an alcoholic, uh, and it was always oh, in that lovable. Well, they had one too many. Isn't that cute? And there's the town drunk. And we almost looked at them uh, uh, in, in a romantic kind of an attitude. And, and we think differently about uh, about uh, you know people that abuse alcohol right now and and the problems and what alcoholism is right now. And 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 was it the same way with sexual harassment too? Like, oh, come on, they're just having a little fun. What's a little pat on the butt? Come on, what's lighten up? That sort of attitude. That's exactly right. I remember a um, a client of mine, a, a head of human resources, a client of mine who said when he used to work at in, in an auto company in Detroit, I can't remember which of the majors it was, he made a joke, this is probably 20 years ago, at GM, we used to grade sexual harassment, not not oppose it. Ha, ha, ha. And this is a guy, head of human resources at a major Canadian company at the time. That was 20 years ago. That would never be said today. Never. And he thought it was a big yuck. And, of course, a common like that would get him fired today from that job, or perhaps from even a much more junior job, or perhaps from a non-human resource job. But, has, but, but is that mindset still prevalent, even though they may not say it? Are they still thinking it? I don't think so. I, I don't believe so. I've, uh, obviously, people are more politically correct than in their behavior than perhaps their actual belief system, but the belief system changes too. It catches up with societal norms. That's what societal norms effectively mean. Mm-hmm. People develop new worldviews. People develop a sense of what's appropriate, and their attitudes shift and has shifted over time. It's not merely that they're not con- perpetrating sexual harassment in a way they once were, but they're recognizing the sexual harassment in a way they didn't at one time, and the boundary of what sexual harassment is is effectively changing based on societal perception of what's appropriate. 
And this is, uh, you used the term workplace harassment, and, and this, for all intents and purposes, of what the, the allegations against Weinstein are, are quite frankly that. I mean, these were actresses. Uh, he was the big boss. He was the money. He was the guy that could make or break people's careers, not unlike uh, how some people viewed Gameshi, I suppose, in that circumstance. Uh, and, and this is all about leverage, I guess, isn't it, Howard? Well, well, it is. That's exactly right. You know, I remember a, um, a media company in Canada at one time, and it was an open secret that if you applied for a job there, the boss was going to want to sleep with you. It was just what everybody understood to be the case, and oftentimes it was true. And that person never, well, he was seen to, it, it, it was so many years ago that that person never had, there was never the impact there would be today. You know, I've just got to be very cautious about what I say because I'm naming the person suggesting who I'm talking about, but but there wasn't the same attitude there is today. So the person was able to commit this conduct with impunity for decades. How have, I want to talk about the employment aspect now from the, the, the victim standpoint. And, and I, know, I know that I'm sure you've had numerous discussions with clients over the years of it, Howard, who uh, maybe not as, as, as popular, not big names, etc., not celebrity names such as we've heard over the last number of days in the Weinstein circumstance right now, but people nonetheless that are going through the same sort of situation right now that are being victimized by people that are in superior positions that are trying to exert that power. Uh, what recourse do they have? I mean, because you know as well as I do that the first reaction is going to be, if I say anything like this, I'm probably going to get fired, and and I can't afford that. And that's, I guess, that's that's the first element of that 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 leverage that the 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 the, the one who's trying to do this to them is holding over them. Well, that's that's an interesting question whether that is still the case. We have a Occupational Health and Safety Act in Ontario that permits a requires really a grievance procedure in every workplace to object and to grieve harassment in any form. We have human rights tribunals that are fairly interventionist and certainly will take strong positions and make the post findings of sexual harassment and award significant damages. We have a media that is attuned to this and is happy to talk about it if it occurs. I think there's a lot of protection. I don't know that Look, if we're talking about some immigrant who barely speaks English and they're foreman, perhaps that person, and especially if they had to only have, say, landed status, might be intimidated and not make a complaint. But I think the mainstream, most of Canadian employees are prepared these days to complain loudly if they're sexually harassed. Yes, some will be concerned with the fact they may not be believed. Some will be concerned with what impact it will have on the workplace. And let's face it, these people are all coming out now and all came out with Gomeshi after the fact. So obviously, sometimes it takes to be being part of a crowd before you come forward. But people will come forward in much greater numbers than they once did and more quickly. And I think that anyone who thinks they can get away with it, sexually harassing an employee or sexually propositioning them today in a workplace with impunity is likely very sadly mistaken. But is there still that inequity when it gets to that legal aspect, Howard? Uh, because I've, I've talked to uh, people at, at some of the, the houses here, Interval House and others, that are dealing with uh, people that are, are, are victims, uh, or in some cases, obviously, alleged victims of sexual harassment. Uh, and, and they feel as if, okay, maybe the law is there, but at the same time, uh, you know, the people that are, are, are involved in the court system themselves have their own uh, propensities, too. You know, we had the judge out in Alberta, of course, yeah, why didn't you keep your legs closed, that sort of thing, and, and some other attitudes. And then there's the outcome of some of these trials, too. I mean, 
you know, they said, okay, my boss is going to hire somebody like a Marie Hennon to defend uh, them in this situation. I don't have a chance. I'm going to get ripped apart on the stand. Why should I go forward on this? And there's a, a certain frustration, I guess, that many victims feel because of that. Well, I guess that is true in the context of the criminal law, and people have to understand there's a big distinction here. Yeah. The criminal law, it's, there can't be a reasonable doubt. And the, not only is there a substantive hurdle for any victim, but there's a procedural one because all material has to be given to the defense. The defense does not have to give the material to the Crown. So in the gomeshi Hennon situation, she was armed with all of the Crown's material, but obviously the Crown didn't have those diary notes and those emails and the, and the other things that were used to attack her on the witness stand, so she walked in like deers in a headlight, unready. But that's different from a workplace harassment complaint or a civil suit for sexual assault, where there's full discoveries of both sides. And at the end of the day, the test isn't, is there a doubt? Is there a reasonable doubt? The test is, what more likely than not happened? And the last victim of Gomeshi, who was going to have their trial, they made a deal at the end. And then she did something, I can't, just can't recall her name right now, she did something very, I thought, very creative. She went up on the courtroom steps and repeated all of her allegations, as much as to say, come on, John, go ahead and sue me. Go ahead and try and sue me for libel, because if you don't, effectively, you've admitted to it. That's how I read what she was saying. And if you do sue me for libel, then we don't have, you can hire Marie Hennon or whoever you want. But I'm going to have full production of your material, just like you'll have production of mine. At the end of the day, it's not a criminal test of onus of burden based on any reasonable doubt. It's who more likely than not is telling the truth. Now we're on a level playing field. So women have to remember that a workplace harassment complaint and the civil system is a level playing field, not like the criminal system. So maybe you don't lay a criminal charge but you lay a sexual harassment charge, you go to the Human Rights Tribunal, you sue in the courts, and you start by complaining in your workplace. Is, is that step one for somebody who, who calls Howard Levitt and says, look, it, I, I'm being victimized here in my workplace, this is, this is becoming unbearable right now? Is it, is it to go through HR, to go through proper channels at the, in that work environment? Well, there's one of two choices. Either they do that, or I write a letter on their behalf. But it's to HR at that point. And it depends what they want. Do they want to leave that workplace? Do they find that the relationship is so fractured now they're uncomfortable being there? Do they want to change? Do they want the, do they want the person, the perpetrator of the sexual harassment fired? You start off with what their goal is. Do they just want it to stop? Do they want the person fired? Do they want to transfer? What do they want? But it starts in the workplace. Well, it's certainly started a conversation over the last number of days, and, and that's a good thing because it gets people talking, and uh, and perhaps maybe more people will come forward in their own situations as well. Howard, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Anytime. And hopefully women from this will learn to come forward early because Weinstein could have been stopped, what, 20 years ago? A long time ago. Years ago. 10 years ago, 5 years ago, last year. Why did it take so long? Exactly. It's tough, but they should do it. Exactly. Thanks again, Howard. Great talking Thanks with you again. Me. Howard Levitt, of course, Canada's leading employment lawyer. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.